Alyssa was scheduled to uh, speak today, and I received a call from her late Friday evening saying that she was sick and would not be able to, uh, to speak today, so you got me again. Sorry. <laughs> uh, this morning I shared a story. I was speaking at Garrison this morning, but I shared a story about a, f- a city dweller who went to visit on the farm, and uh, the farmer called his dog out, he ran out from the house and he said, watch this, and he ran over and the dog rounded up all the cattle and drove them, guided them into the pen, and then took his paw and locked the door. And the visitor said, well, what's that dog's name? He said, ah, let me see. He said, what's the flower that's red, it smells good, and it's got thorns on its stem? And he said, rose, a rose. So he looked at his wife and he said, Rose, what's the name of our dog? <laughs> you know, sometimes um, I find, I remember things that happened a long time ago, but I forget what happened a, an hour ago. Anybody ever feel like that? Yeah, we all feel like that. And I was reminded of when I worked at Swift's back when I was a teenager in the yards up in Edmonton, And uh, some of the guys that worked out there in the yards, I mean, their language was pretty blue. There was one guy, I mean, he used language that was just kind of rattle your brain. And uh, I would chat with him and talk with him and try to help him uh, change his... uh, I'd say, when you're going to curse like that, sometimes I'd just repeat to him what he said. And he said, I said that? I said, yeah. I said, use my name. I said, I find it very offensive when you use my Savior's name like that. And I'd hear him over in another area, and he'd holler, Blaine McLeod! You know, and I'd go, okay. But there was another guy, and he had a reputation of being one of the bad guys. He had done time in prison, and uh, he was kind of crude, too. I tried to share my faith with him, and I thought, you know, that guy's never going to make it. Never going to make it. I kind of had given up on him. I'm back a year later, and I went out to visit the guys. And the first thing that this guy that I had kind of given up on, said, Blaine, you won't believe it. I'm a born-again Christian. I've accepted Christ as my Savior, and so is my wife, and we're involved in this church. And he was so excited about his new life. Wow. I mean, talk about the transforming power of Jesus Christ. It works, folks. It really does. And we're going to look at an incredible life transformed by the grace of Jesus Christ this morning. Each of us who are believers have experienced this amazing work of grace. And it's what our world so desperately needs today. I'm going to mention a few names this morning, and when I do, you will have a definite thing come to mind when I hear it, when you hear the name, okay? Um, So here we go. O.J. Simpson, uh, Corey Tamboon, Billy Graham, Tim Horton, by the way... uh, I didn't have to pay for my Tims today. I got a free one. Yes, good for Tim. Tiger Woods. Alex Trebek. Justin Trudeau. Queen Elizabeth II. Donald Trump. 
Prince Andrew. Wow, what a list of men and women. Each of them is known publicly and even internationally for their exploits in life. Some good and others not so good. I'm just going to... Every one of us are known either by who we are or what we've done. We're known for our character, our conduct, our attitude, and our actions. And this is true of all of us. But have we have we been known as being a bad individual or for making some horrible mistakes, you think, is there any hope for us to ever change our course? Is it even possible that we can ever really change? I recently read this statement, and it says, nature forms us, sin deforms us, education informs us, Prison reforms us, but only Jesus transforms us. Oh, your past can and will dictate your life unless you are transformed by the power of Jesus Christ. That's a fact, folks. Let me show you a biblical example of this amazing work of God. Continuing on in our study in Philippians, chapter 3, verse 1 through 9, and this is the word of God. Furthermore, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh, for it is... We who are circumcision of the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the laws, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of their surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Father, I pray that you would take the words of my mouth and translate them to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen. The Apostle Paul was perhaps the greatest example of the change that Jesus Christ can make in one's life. 
The transforming power of Jesus is clearly evident in the scriptures, and today we're going to study the great work of grace. First, we will look at Paul's testimony before he met Christ. In fact, his name was not Paul, it was Saul. And Paul's value before he met Christ, what he put as significant in his life and meaningful, this was his gain, his fortune, and his joy. Different strokes for different folks, right? And those were Paul's. He belonged to the upper echelons of the law keepers, the Pharisees. And among them, he was so zealous that he led the way in persecuting the enemies of God, the church of Jesus. And that he kept the law meticulously. He got strokes for belonging. He got strokes for excelling. He got strokes from God, or so he thought, for his blameless law-keeping. So let's look to see what the Scriptures reveals to us about Paul. Well, in Acts 7, 58, uh, this was when Stephen was taken before them. He was dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of the young man named Saul. So we clearly see that he was an observer. He was watching. And the event that surrounded Stephen's death, he was not at that time an active participant, but he was observing. How many observers do we have here today? Saul is now approving in Acts 8, 1. And Saul approved of their killing him. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all expected, except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Very quickly, the narrative moves from him observing to him putting a stamp of approval on the killing of Stephen. And then thirdly, Saul is engaged in sin. In Acts 8 and 3, but Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. He is now an active participant in the persecution of the early church. And he's sinning willfully against the Holy Spirit. He has moved from observing to approving and now actually engaging in the ravages of sin. And it only gets worse. Fourth, Saul is now deepening his sinful behavior. In Acts 9, 1 through 2, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found anyone there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Downward spiral. He now continues his murderous rampage, pursuing the believers who had fled his original persecution. I think we've all experienced that at times. We were born in sin. And some of us lived in homes where we often observe sin. And it doesn't take long before we find ourselves approving of it. 
and some point soon we find ourselves engaging in sin ourselves, and to make matters worse, we deepen our sinful patterns. Saul's life journey is our life journey as well. Sin always promises more than we can ever give. It takes us further than we ever wanted to go. We look at those who just started playing around with trying a, an occasional uh, drug here and there, and all of a sudden they are totally addicted. Or they take that first drink, and all of a sudden the drink owns them. Or they get involved in sex, sexual acts and perversion. And all of a sudden, they find themselves homeless and alone. And it costs us far more than we would ever want to pay. Well, let's read Acts 9. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly, suddenly, imagine it, a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Here we see that Saul has a personal encounter with Christ Jesus. Remember this, sin is always a personal issue with God. And when Saul was sinning against the church and attacking God's children, Jesus, the head of the church, rises to the occasion and he pierces Saul's darkness. Christ told him how much he would have to suffer. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And Paul prepared himself for this. Paul then began to compare his prior values as nothing. The way he prepared himself is described in verse 7, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul looks at his standing in the upper echelons of the religious society, the Pharisees. He looks at the glory of being at the very top of that group with all its strokes and applause. He looks at the rigor of his law-keeping and the sense of moral pride that he enjoyed and, and he pre prepares to suffer by taking his whole world and turning it upside down by reversing his values reversing his values whatever things were gained to me those things I have counted loss before he was a Christian he had a ledger, two columns, and I tried to make one here. Can you put that up next? Give it a flick, I think. There we go. 
So on one column, these were his gains. That's what he was saying. Circumcised on the eighth day. I was of the people of Israel. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. And as for righteousness, based on the law, faultless. And then on the loss's side, there was one word, and that was Christ. The terrible prospect that this Jesus movement might get out of hand and Jesus prove real and win the day. On the gain side was the human glory versus on the lost side was when we meet the living Christ on the Damascus Road. Paul took a red, big red pencil and wrote on that loss. And then on the other side, he writes gain. More than that, I count all things to be loss in the view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Look at the change, the transformation that took place because of the grace of God was allowed, he allowed the grace of God to work in his life and he accepted Christ and his gift of salvation. The change was so dramatic. And not only that, the more Paul thought about the relative values of life in the world and the greatness of Christ, he moved beyond the few things mentioned in verse 5 and 6, but everything but Christ in that first column. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. So he started out counting the most precious things as loss, and ended up counting everything as loss except Christ. So what Paul is doing here, he's showing us the teaching of Jesus, how the teaching of Jesus is to be lived out in our life every day. For example, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field which a man found and hid. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Becoming a Christian means discovering that Christ, the King, is a treasure chest of holy joy and writing loss over everything else in the world in order to gain him. He sold all that he had to buy that field. Or in Luke 14, 33, Jesus said, No one of you can be my disciple who does not take leave of all his own possessions. In other words, becoming a disciple of Jesus means writing loss in big red letters over all your possessions and everything else this world offers. Now, what does that mean practically to us today? I think it means this. It means that whatever I am called upon to choose between anything in this world and Christ, I choose Christ. It means that I will deal with the things of the world in the way that draw me nearer to Christ so that I can gain more of Christ and enjoy more of him by the way I used the world. It means that I will always deal with the things of this world in a way that show that they are not my treasure, but rather show that Christ is my treasure. I think of 
someone like Mother Teresa, prime example of that. When I was 18 years old, I had written in the front of my Bible a quote that C.T. Studd uh, had um, said. He said, for if Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. Now, C.T. Studd was a, uh, the son, he was one of three sons of a very influential and uh, uh, well-heeled family in England. And through the ministry of Moody, uh, he, early on in his life, he had accepted Christ, but he had backslidden. And he just became a part of uh, the way the world thought. He didn't read his Bible. He didn't share witness with anyone. And he said it just became all of a sudden kind of flat for him. And then he was at a service and uh, Dwight Moody, Dwight L. Moody was preaching. And he rededicated his life to the Lord and received the joy of his salvation once again. He went to Eton School. He was a cricketer. Uh, and then he went to Cambridge University, and he excelled. But he felt the call of God, and he left it all uh, to go to the mission field. And at 25, he received his inheritance, and it was quite, quite substantial. But he started, before he even knew how much it was, he started giving it away, giving it away, giving it away. And at the end, he had about 35,000 pounds left. And um, he got married to an Irish girl who was a, a missionary. And he said, I will give this to you. And she said, no. She said, we've got to follow the example that Christ gave to us. We give that away. And they gave it all away. And, and um, his life was one of sacrifice. He could have had, lived in luxury with lots of wealth. But he decided, if Jesus Christ is God, then no sacrifice is too great for me to make for him. It means that if I lose any or all the things this world can offer, I will not lose my joy or my treasure or my life because Christ is all. The sense of well-being in the most difficult times of our life is a treasure beyond compare. Why is this way of preparing to suffer? Why is becoming a Christian and writing loss across everything in your life but Christ a way of preparing to suffer? The answer is that suffering is nothing more than taking away of bad things or good things that the world offers for our enjoyment. What if your reputation was taken away? Would you have joy? What if your esteem among your peers is gone? What if your job is no longer there? What if your money has been stolen or taken from you? What if your spouse leaves you? What if you lose your 
sexual life? What about your children? Your friends? Your health? Your strength? Your sight? Your hearing? Success? When these things are taken away by force or by circumstance or by choice, we suffer. But if we have followed Paul and the teaching of Jesus and have already counted them as loss for the surpassing value of gaining Christ, then we're prepared to suffer. Paul gives his testimony about the encounter and, and God's transforming power in several places. He describes it throughout the books our Lord had him pen. In Romans, he talks about it. In Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. But none are greater than what he says in 1 Timothy. And he says this, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has given me strength that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service, even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that an encouraging piece of scripture? That none of us are beyond redemption. And we should never give up praying and holding those that we think have no interest in the things of God at all, but we keep them before the throne of God in our prayers and our witness to them. Never give up. Never lose hope. This piece of scripture, you know, is really encouraging to me because of the people, a person like Paul, can be changed and transformed and become one of the greatest apostles. It's amazing. So Paul's testimony after his encounter with Christ, it overflows in his salvation. His life displays God's power through the Holy Spirit. As I said last week, the Holy Spirit is the wind in his sails. His life reveals God's purpose. And his life now brings praise to God. If someone were defining you today, would you fall into those categories? The way we live as Christians and followers, do our neighbors, do our co-workers know that we are disciples of Jesus? Does God conspire through our life, our words, our action, our love to create an interest in this transforming grace of Jesus Christ? Those are hard questions, but they're questions that need to be asked.
His past did not dictate his future, but rather Jesus transformed his life. And Philippians 3, 4 through 11 gives us further testimony of this great work of God. So what should we do with this? We are all sinners, all observers, approvers, engagers, and ultimately deepening our sinful behavior. But God was rich in mercy. We had a personal encounter with Jesus Christ through the gospel. We believe that he dramatically transformed us just as he did the Apostle Paul. And if he can do it for me, he can do it for you. He can do it for that neighbor. He can do it for that co-worker. He can do it for that wayward child, the prodigals in your life. Do not give up. The transforming grace of God is just as active today as it was back in the day of Paul. God's grace overflows through salvation in us. Our changed lives should display his power our new lives should reveal his purpose and our lips bring forth his praise. Hallelujah, what a Savior. As we live today, may Matthew 5.16 be your desire. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Have you experienced in the last week the prompting of the Holy Spirit? Have you heard him encourage you in your life to do, to touch, to leave people better off than you found them? May we listen and may our light so shine that others may see good works and give glory to Father in heaven. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take these words and translate them to our hearts today. We know that the grace of God is still transforming lives every hour, every day, even every moment. And Father, I pray that we will be a catalyst that you will use to impact the lives of others for Christ. Be it through consistent prayer, be it through words and acts of kindness, be it through our compassion and empathy and help. Lord, you can use each one of us. You know we're all unique. And you've created us for a purpose. May your prompting through the Holy Spirit help us to fulfill that purpose in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Last night we were, my wife Carol, who's been sick since Christmas Day, um, she's not skipping church because I'm preaching. <laughs> and she wanted me to tell you that. <laughs> So I've told you. I've done what I was told. But we were reminded back of a, a little pastor 
His name was Archie Stanford. And he was about this tall, maybe that tall. And he had glasses that were so thick that they looked like cork bottles, you know, or, or not cork bottles, but bottoms of bottles. They were really thick. And he said he'd come to visit every once in a while, he and his wife. And Carol reminded me last night again about how he told me that every day of his life, he prayed for me. But he not only prayed for me, he prayed for my father every day of his life and his sister because he had the privilege of leading my grandmother to Christ. And she died in childbirth and left a three-and-a-half-year-old and a, a two-year-old. And so he made it the goal of his life to pray for my father every day of his life, and then he was praying for me every day of my life. I'm telling you, folks, we all have a purpose. We all have a purpose. Never underestimate the power of your prayers. God's transforming grace is still working. Don't give up. Do you believe it? If you believe it, say amen. amen. There you go. Well, we've been the church congregated. Now we're going to become the church dispersed. And may your lives reflect his love. May God conspire through your living to create in the hearts of others a desire to know the Christ that you love and serve. Now may the blessing of God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit rest and abide with each one of you now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you and have a wonderful week.